Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, listener. You're hearing the archive presentation in six parts of our classic episode covering the work, life, and strange experiences of famed sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. This episode also covers associated topics like Christian Gnosticism, physicalist and dualist views of consciousness, the thousands of pages of philosophical ramblings that Dick wrote in the last years of his life, and how in many ways, thanks to his visionary fiction, we are all living in the reality that PKD made. We're dropping one part into our feed for each of the next six weeks. If you'd prefer to hear all of this in one big MP3, it's available as episode 18 in the show feed. But we know that some of you out there prefer our modern, digestible chunks approach to show delivery. Digestible chunks approach to show delivery over our original huge topics and multi-hour marathons approach. So this is an opportunity to check out some of the older stuff in short doses while we work up brand new stuff. You'll start hearing those new episodes in January of 2024, and we hope in the meantime these will tide you over. You can reach us at theparanoidstrain.com email theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, join our friendly group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash theparanoidstrain, and if you're so inclined, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash theparanoidstrain. And now, please relax as our pink light penetrates your brain. Don't worry, that analogy will make sense after you listen. Jesuit, out. Briefly, what he came to believe in this respect was this. Valus had revealed to him that he was both 20th century sci-fi author Philip K. Dick and simultaneously a person named Thomas, a Christian currently living in the 3rd century CE who was hiding from and battling the Roman authorities. Ah, Jesuit. Come the fuck on. Yeah, I know. We'll get back to why this is weird and crazy, but first we want to talk about why it's interesting. His ideas along this line are elaborated further in Valus. Prior to that, during the interval in which he had experienced the two-world superimposition, he had seen not only California, USA of the year 1974, but also ancient Rome. He had discerned within the superimposition a gestalt shared by both space-time continua, their common element, a black iron prison. This is what the dream referred to as the Empire. He knew it because, upon seeing the black iron prison, he had recognized it. Everyone dwelt in it without realizing it. The Black Iron Prison was their world. If you hear an echo of the Matrix in the phrase the Black Iron Prison, you're not alone. More later. For Dick, the Black Iron Prison was the entirety of the world as presented to our eyes. The powers that be, or the Roman Empire, or the god or gods of this world, conspired back in the 3rd century CE, or AD if you went to school back in the 20th century, to create an artificial reality that would confuse the message and followers of Christ and convince everyone else that time was passing that the world was developing, that technology was advancing, etc. 
Meanwhile, in reality, time would remain frozen in that same 3rd century AD. This led to his often repeated refrain, The empire never ended. So, Dick was, in his own words, from the exegesis, actually an early Christian in the 3rd century named Thomas. I was absolutely convinced that I was living in Rome sometime after Christ appeared, but before Christianity became legal. Back in the furtive fish sign days. And the way he could be this guy, but also simultaneously Philip K. Dick, 20th century sci-fi writer, was through his discovery that at some point around the year 300-something, an evil force changed our timeline to one that's running orthogonally. That means at right angles to the original correct time. Where, remember, it's still the 3rd century A.D. Like, it's still the 3rd century right now, as you're listening to this. Again, in Dick's own words. The basic scientific discovery of my vast metaphysic, which I had written you about, was my postulation of two times at right angles to each other, which I called vertical, which we normally perceive, and horizontal, which is the axis along which the objects in Ubik regress. Ubik, a renowned novel that he wrote back in the 60s, long before the 2374 experience, eventually represented for him the good, divine, or alien force acting in our universe, and therefore he definitely suspected his 74 experience caused him to write Ubik in the past through orthogonal time. We know. It's a lot to take in. Just trust us. It's worth noting here that the period during which Dick experienced this transcendence... Transcendence, schizophrenic meltdown, rupture with reality was also a truly wrenching time for both the country and the world. Recency bias causes many these days to presume that ours is the most fraught period in recent history, but that's completely inaccurate and really silly, and we'll address it in a future episode. But as an editor for the Exegesis noted, What else was going on in the world in March 1974? A jumbo jet fell out of the sky outside Paris, killing more than 300 people. An Arab oil embargo produced the most pronounced gasoline shortage ever in America, with cars lined up at stations for miles. Overshadowing even these unsettling events was the kidnapping in Northern California of the heiress of a millionaire publishing family by a band of domestic terrorists. The subsequent conversion of Patty Hearst to the radicals' cause sounds like a novel that Dick might have written in the 50s, or might yet write toward the end of his life. Most prominently, virtually all of Richard Nixon's immediate political circle in the White House, including his attorney general and chief of staff, were indicted in the Watergate scandal, which had reached critical mass and the president himself was named a co-conspirator by a grand jury. To Dick and to the country at large, this was the moment when the Nixon presidency, five months before its end, was at its most toxic. The synopsis we just provided is a fair approximation of the dominant strains in the exegesis, as Dick struggles for most of a decade to figure out what happened to his entire reality a few months before Nixon's resignation. But it doesn't do justice to the sheer rigor and skepticism he subjects his own experience and conclusions to. He never actually settles on a single definitive reading of the experience. It's so much back and forth. And while we admire his struggle, trying to integrate it into a consistent, realistic worldview, he also had plenty of wackadoo moments, as when he mentions to a friend that he found a passage in the Gospel of John that fits in with his Valus worldview. But in the manner of so many deluded Mandela effect believers of the kind that we covered last time, Dick suggests that this passage was somehow added to the book that it wasn't in the Gospel of John the many previous times he had read it. Okay, that's super cray-cray. But to be fair, the man believed his brain had recently been pierced by God in the form of a pink light. But how exactly did that pink light experience connect up with all of this Black Iron Prison Roman Empire Jesus stuff? Right. There's actually a pretty sensible, at least 
in Philip K. Dick terms, answer to that, but it involves diving into that alternate version of Christianity we mentioned earlier. These are long-dead sects whose ideas are, these days, heretical. But in the first few centuries after Jesus' death, that period when Christianity was growing from a few followers of a radical prophet into the dominant religion of the biggest empire in the Western world, these alternate Christianities, and their very different interpretations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, were real and a viable alternative to what eventually crystallized into orthodoxy. Broadly, the concepts we want to deal with here are thought of as Gnostic Christianity. The meaning of the second word is obvious, but the first might require a little translation. Many of you will be familiar with the term agnostic, used for those who don't claim to know whether or not there is a god. In that term, the ag is negative, and the Gnostic refers to the idea of knowledge itself. So we can see that Gnostic Christianity would be the Christianity of those who have knowledge. In his course on Gnosticism, Professor David Brack notes that for the Greeks, gnosis was a specific kind of knowledge, different from the simple acquisition of facts. As I said, gnosis in ancient Greek means knowledge, but not just any kind of knowledge. It refers to personal, direct, immediate knowledge. I might say about another person, yes, I know Susan, and I could probably describe Susan and her life in some detail, but I probably would not be able to explain to you fully in words my knowledge of Susan. You really have to get to know Susan yourself if you want to really know Susan. That's the kind of knowledge Gnosis is. What the ancient Gnostics said is that they have, and they can offer to others, Gnosis of God. Direct, immediate, personal knowledge of God. Brack goes on to note that for thousands of years, most of what we knew about these folks came from what their theological enemies wrote about them. After all, the ideas of the Gnostics eventually lost out to what we now know as mainstream Orthodox Christianity. And the victors were hardly interested in preserving the thoughts of the vanquished. After all, to the mainstream church fathers, the Gnostics' approach was a dangerous misreading of the faith, so the less said about them, the better. Wouldn't want to lead any members of the flock astray with all of his fancy book learning. Of course, they preserved the writings of the Orthodox church fathers, though. And within those writings, they thus preserved those dudes' arguments against the Gnostic heresies, back when those were still a going concern. Which, of course, means that when later scholars wished to pierce together the intellectual history of Christianity, most of what they had available to reconstruct the ideas of the Gnostics consisted of church fathers quoting the Gnostics in order to argue against them. Those who listened to our episode on the Ismaili assassins, whose writings and theology have similarly been preserved only in the archives of the dominant Sunni Muslim sect, who hated the Ismaili's theological guts, will recognize this as a familiar problem for historians of minority religions. In any case, that was the state of scholarship on the Gnostics pretty much until the 1940s when a truly remarkable thing happened. We'll let this typically overwrought Discovery Channel documentary fill you in. In 1945, a remarkable discovery unearthed a large collection of lost Gospels and changed forever 
the history of Christianity. In Egypt, near a town called Nag Hammadi, a farmer and his companions found a sealed clay jar with an 1,800-year-old payload. The jar contained 52 separate texts with titles like the Acts of Peter, the Apocalypse of James, and the Gospel of Thomas. These were literal lost gospels mentioned by ancient writers but apparently buried after the Roman Emperor Constantine's consolidation of power in 325 AD. The full story is super weird. Two brothers dig up these absurdly ancient texts, but then show them to basically nobody for years, during which time said dude's mom decides these books are some kind of ancient evil and therefore burns a few of the irreplaceable materials just to make sure she isn't cursed. Eventually, though, the books come to the attention of the Bible nerd scholarly world. Then, after a long series of political arguments and the rigors of translation, the first complete English edition only finally appears in the 1970s. So it's literally true that when you hear what we're about to tell you, you will have more knowledge of the origins of Christianity than even the most dedicated and knowledgeable scholar for the preceding 1800 plus years could possibly have attained. Isn't the gradual enhancement of knowledge through the careful work of generation after generation of painstaking conscientious experts super rad? It's not like the texts found in Nag Hammadi, the collection which is often shorthanded as the Gnostic Gospels, are intended to tell a coherent story, or even to line up with each other. They were written by different authors, each of whom was expressing his or her, but, let's face it, mostly his, ideas and interpretations of the life, teachings, importance, followers, and impact of Jesus. In this sense, though, the books share a great deal with the writings that came to form what we know as the New Testament, the origin text of Christianity as we know it today. Those who, like us, grew up attending church on the regular may never have noticed, but each of the familiar four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, is its own complete coherent story, and each was clearly intended by its author to stand on its own. They weren't intended to be one quarter of what modern Christians have synthesized as the complete story. As scholars already knew, and as the Nag Hammadi find only served to elaborate, these were simply four of perhaps dozens or even hundreds of versions of the gospel. The word literally means good news, but in this context refers to the aforementioned life-death-resurrection narrative. And that, upon close inspection, even the four familiar stories actually don't perfectly align with each other. Take, for example, the resurrection of Jesus, which Christians see as the linchpin of the story. When Christ conquers death, emerges from the grave, and inspires his followers to go out and spread the good news, as it were. Well, though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John agree on the broad outlines, it turns out they disagree a great deal on the details, as perhaps the preeminent scholar in the field, the inestimable Bart Ehrman, elucidates here. Jesus' death. What about differences in the accounts of his resurrection? Well, who went to the tomb on the third day? Did Mary Magdalene go alone, or did Mary go with other women? Depends which gospel you read. If with other women, how many of them were there? What were their names? And which ones were they? It depends which gospels you read. Was the stone rolled away before the women got to the tomb or not? What did they see in the tomb? Did they see a man? Did they see two men? Or did they see an angel? Depends which gospel you read. What were they told to tell the disciples? Were the disciples supposed to stay in Jerusalem to see Jesus? Or were they supposed to go to Galilee? Depends which gospel you read. Did the women tell anybody? Or were they silent about it? 
Depends which gospel you read. Did the disciples ever leave Jerusalem? Or did they immediately, did they never leave, or did they uh, leave and go to Galilee? Depends which gospel you read. My conclusion, these are not reliable historical accounts. There are too many discrepancies. So, if there are numerous discrepancies when it comes to the most important part of the story, even among the four gospels that made it into the Bible, we might anticipate the version of Jesus' good news contained in the books that didn't make it, including the Nag Hammadi materials, would be pretty fucking wild. And we'd be right. There's no perfect place to dive into the fascinating mess that is Gnostic teaching on the reality of God, but let's start with the Gnostic secret gospel of John, which is totally distinct from the standard Orthodox gospel of John, and which, as Professor Brack points out, offers a complete overview of the Gnostic story of God and the creation. And trust us, your poorly remembered Bible school education isn't going to be particularly helpful. First off, the Gnostic view of God has a lot in common with the Hindu idea of Brahman, or the Buddhist concept of Nirvana. It's impersonal, unknowable. As Brack points out, it's barely even definable as a god. According to the Gnostics, God is a complex intellect consisting of numerous aspects or dimensions called eons. The true God may be complicated, but he is perfect and serene. Not so the God who created this world. He is imperfect and angry. The God who created this world is something of a mistake. And so our universe is tragically flawed. That's why we need salvation from the true God. The secret book, according to John, presents itself as a revelation from the Savior to the disciple and apostle John. When the text opens, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus have already happened. If you want to know God, be a better person, and find salvation, the secret book says you need to understand that you came from a God higher than the one you now know, and that the world in which we live is not how it should be. So who is this God that we came from, according to the secret book? The best way to think about the Gnostic God is to think about him as a vast intellect, a mind, similar to but much greater and more well intellectual than our own minds. And so just as our intellects are complex, full of thoughts and constantly active and creative, so too God is complex, full of thoughts called eons and constantly active and creative. And just as we find peace when our mind is still and quiet, so too God is perfectly still and quiet, even as he is active and creative. God is ultimately unknowable to human beings. There's a part of God, or better, the very heart of God. It's unknowable beyond our capacity to understand. And that's where the revelation of the Savior to John begins, with God's ultimate unknowability. He calls this ultimate unknowable God the invisible spirit. The invisible spirit really cannot be talked about at all, and yet the Savior says a lot about it. It's completely one, but otherwise it transcends anything we can say. It's unlimited, unfathomable, ineffable, immeasurable, incorruptible. It really even shouldn't be called divine because it's beyond our concepts of divinity. It's complete silence and complete rest. Now, below the ultimate unknowable chillaxer, there are other aeons or thoughts of God. The greatest of these is forethought. That is, in a sense, the unknowable God's reflections on itself. It's also called the barbalo. Nobody knows what that word means. Think of the barbalo as the feminine reflection of the masculine ultimate God. Then, this barbalo produced the self-originate when the divine spirit gazed upon her. This self-originate is also called the Christ which you may recognize as a title generally associated with the historical Jesus of Nazareth. 
Right, but there are a bunch of other thoughts of God that came out of the Barbalo eventually, all of which orbit around in a perfected harmony of pure thought. These included wisdom, or Sophia. The lowest eon, at some point in the eternal past, she decided she wanted to have her own thought. She didn't even consult with the divine daddy god. This thought turned out to be a misbegotten thing, something new. It was a bad thought. That thought's name? Yalda Baoth. Wisdom was horrified and cast her misbegotten thought child out of the divine realm. I think we should spare just a moment for the poor abandoned Y-baby, thrown into an empty, uncaring universe, shut out from the divine favor, his mom trying desperately to cover up the very fact of his existence. It must have been quite confusing, given that he had only just come into being. It reminds us of the whale who, for reasons it's too confusing to get into here, suddenly materializes out of nothing in midair over an Earth-like planet in the sci-fi humor classic, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Said whale then tries to make sense out of the strange world he briefly finds himself in before gravity completes its grim work. Hello! What's happening? Uh, excuse me, who am I? Hello! Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? What do I mean by who am I? Now calm down, get a grip now. Ooh. This is an interesting sensation. What is it? It's a sort of yawning, tingling sensation in my... my. Well, I suppose I'd better start finding names and things if I want to make any headway in what for the sake of what I shall call an argument I shall call the world. So let's call it my stomach. So, a yawning, tingling sensation in my stomach. Good. Oh, it's getting quite strong. Hey, what about this whistling, roaring sound going past what I'm suddenly going to call my head? That can be wind. Is that a good name? Oh, it'll do. Perhaps I can find a better name for it later when I find out what it's for, because there certainly seems to be a hell of a lot of it. Hey, what's this thing? This, let's call it a tail. Yeah, tail. Hey, I can really thrash it about pretty good, can't I? Wow, wow. Hey, doesn't seem to achieve much, but I'll probably find out what it's for later on. Now, have I built up any coherent picture of things yet? No. Oh, hey, this is really exciting. So much to find out about, so much to look forward to. I'm quite dizzy with anticipation. Or is it the wind? Hey, there really is a lot of that now, isn't there? And wow, what's this thing suddenly coming towards me very fast, very, very fast, so big and flat and wide, it is a big, wide-sounding word, like ow, 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 round, round, ground, that's it, ground, I wonder if it'll be friends with it. That's two Hitchhiker's references in two episodes. I fear for the future. Don't tell her, but there's another one coming later. Also, seriously, if y'all haven't, that series is just the greatest. Read it. Anyway, Yaldi took a rather different tack than our late lamented whale, not simply and sweetly puzzling through his fate, but rather using the dim and fractured memories he carried with him of the perfect, harmonious divine realm to fashion his own replica out of the crude matter of the universe he found himself in. Only because he was surrounded again with nothing but crude matter, instead of the primo uncut god stuff, his copycat universe is full of failure, imperfection, and corruption. I can see where this is going. The universe he made is our universe, isn't it? Yes, indeedy. And that means that Yaldaba Oath is, to the Gnostics thinking, the god of this world. Wait, hold on. Sunday school was a long time ago, but I clearly remember that the god of our universe is pure and good, and it's humans who fucked everything up. Yes, that is indeed the view of essentially all of the mainstream Abrahamic monotheistic religions, that is, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. God is good and has used his messengers, be they Old Testament prophets, Jesus, or Mohammed, to reach out and try to help his flawed and rebellious human children return to his righteousness and goodness and therefore turn away from their own sinful natures 
which through Adam and Eve they brought upon themselves. Oh, right. Apple, snake, cast out of Eden. Rings a bell. Well, to the Gnostics, this view had it all wrong. After all, even if you account for human sinning, how could a pure, just, and righteous God have created a universe in which so much evil abounds? And I'm not just talking about the evil that humans inflict upon each other, as horrendous as that can be. I'm talking floods, famines, earthquakes, plagues, the constant suffering and death of creatures throughout the world as a simple function of the pitiless lion-eat-lamb logic of the food chain, and the ever-present threat that a large hunk of space rock could smack into our planet, rendering all of this moot in an instant, dinosaur-style. Incidentally, this is an issue that dates back to ancient times, and is commonly known as the problem of evil. There's an entire branch of theological apologetics called theodicy, dedicated exclusively to the question of how a purely good God can exist in the universe where there's so much bad shit going down. So this is a tough problem for believers in an omnipotent, all-good God to address. But not for the Gnostics. See, their explanation for why we have a universe with so much suffering and chaos is simple. It's because we, and the universe we inhabit, were created by a flawed and evil God. Slow down there. Gnosticism is a type of Christianity. And Christianity derived from Judaism, correct? Yes, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. There's pretty much universal agreement on that point among both believers and skeptics. But Jews worship the God who created this universe. Yep, Yahweh. Miss Jehovah, if you're nasty. So where do the Gnostics get off deciding that the god that Jesus' own Jewish people worshipped was actually some deranged evil deity? The answer has something to do with the aforementioned problem of theodicy. After all, if you can't reconcile the idea of a perfect and just God with the evil in the world, why not just presume that it's not the perfect just God who made the evil universe, but rather some other asshole? It's also important to understand that, instead of seeing Jesus as the son of the God who created this universe, the Gnostics saw him as something very different, which we'll cover shortly. The rest of the secret gospel of John goes through some other major events in the Bible, each time giving them a Gnostic twist. In this version, the real divinities trick Yaldi and co. into transferring some of the divine essence that he got from wisdom when he was created, in turn, into some humans that he's fashioned, as this divine spark would help bring those humans to life. To the evil god's horror, this results in the spirit humans being more powerful than their creator. So he quickly fashions bodies out of crude matter and imprisons the spirit humans in there so they won't threaten him. In this way, the Gnostics also explain exactly why there are two completely distinct, separate creation stories in the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 and 2. Seriously, look it up. For Gnostics, the first creation is of the spirit humans, and the second is of the crude material bodies, only because the deluded followers of Yaldabaoth, that is, Moses and the ancient Jews, are the ones who wrote the book, they got everything wrong, and made Yahweh slash Yaldi out to be the hero, and the humans into the source of evil. Note that this view from the Gnostics contains elements of the later anti-Semitism that eventually came to dominate many threads of Christian argument in the first century CE, and which eventually provided cover for the anti-Semitic horrors of everyone, from the Tsars to Martin Luther to Hitler. Similar revisionist storytelling casts wisdom and not a snake in the role of the one who convinces Adam and Eve to eat from the Tree of Knowledge, even though Yaldi has told them not to. And the purpose, of course, is to help the humans understand the divine spark that's in them, so they learn to worship the true God instead of the God they know, the God of this world. Okay, so the Gnostics believed they were divine sparks stuck inside a gross material bodies, and they got that way because an evil demigod corrupted the divinity that was placed into them by the agents of the true unknowable God, 
who is not the god of this universe. What the fuck does this have to do with Philip K. Dick getting a pink light through his brain exactly? Just give me a few more minutes and a digression to another Gnostic book, The Gospel of Judas. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.